0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The 45-day continuing resolution passed by Congress and signed into law by President Biden will avert a government shutdown, but doesn't include additional Ukraine war funding, leaving unresolved one of the issues that prompted Republican members to force a possible shutdown. The White House and lawmakers have stressed their support for Kiev remains undiminished, But this might just kick the shutdown can uh, to either around Thanksgiving or around Christmas. The Federal Reserve suggests that it's not done with further interest rate increases. This as oil prices continue to rise, interest rates in Europe drop uh, to the lowest point in two years. Investors grow increasingly jittery about the impact of RTX's announcement that its revolutionary geared turbofan engine needs inspections, how it will impact Airbus, MTU, and other uh, companies. In other commercial news, Air France orders a whopping number of A350 jetliners. Air Canada orders more 777s, and Airbus selects Christian Scherer uh, to head uh, the giant's uh, commercial aircraft sales. German defense spending surges The Czech Republic makes it official that they're buying 24 F-35 fighters, and Sweden prepares to unveil its new A-26 submarine. That one of our very own will be there to see live and in the steel. Uh, Joining us today as they do every week to discuss all this and more, and thankfully all together at the same time, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tuza of the Independent Equity Research from Agency Partners, and Richard Abloffi of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Everybody, welcome back to the program. It is fantastic having you all on together.
1: It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks.
0: Yeah, it's great. Uh, thank you very much, Argo. Okay.
2: Great to be all out together again, Vago. Thanks.
0: Yes, uh, together again. We could, we could sing ballads about it. And uh, Sash, thanks very much also. Uh, you've cleared security and are making your way to the gate, but you're doing the program. Uh, and we appreciate that very, very much as you're on the move to Sweden. And we're going to hear all about that in a little bit. Uh, Ron, um, how did the group perform uh, given uh, right? I mean, when we. End of the week or last week, it looked like we were going to have a shutdown. Everybody was convinced we were going to have a shutdown at the very last minute. Uh, this, uh, uh, House Speaker McCarthy put his job on the line. We're going to see how that evolves over the coming week um, in order to avert uh, a shutdown. Um, and we've also heard from uh, the Federal uh, Reserve. Uh, or at least uh, one of the regional bank uh, chairman uh, that there could be more interest rate uh, hikes uh, in uh, in the future. Walk us through how the group performed against this before I go uh, to asking you, you know, how the market now reacts to uh, the fact that we don't have a shutdown.
1: Yeah, it was an interesting week. Right? I mean, the S and P was off by three quarters of a of a percent, you know, 70, 75 basis points. Um, Boeing was down three and a half. Uh, Spirit Aero Systems, interestingly enough, was up six and a half. I mean, a lot of people ask, you know, how can Boeing be down and Spirit be up? But that's a whole different story. Uh, Raytheon was up about half a percent. Northrop was kind of a real outperformer uh, of the large caps, up three and a half percent, and Lockheed Martin was down a percent. Um, when, when you look at the the stocks that people tend to identify more, sort of jet plays, GD was up a percent, Textron was up half a percent, uh, and Bombardier was down a percent. Uh, it was a real mixed performance. I mean, a, a, we had some incoming questions from investors, obviously, over the last two weeks around what does a CR mean? What does a shutdown mean? But my sense was the market was kind of looking through it. So to the, the second part of your question, you know, what's the market do now that we didn't have a shutdown? Maybe it, it buoys the entire market, but I don't think that the defense sector specifically was all that worried about it one of the one of the big open questions actually was and I think there was more concerns on this when you look at Gulfstream could they still certify the G700 Uh, Boeing more importantly because Boeing can't ticket airplanes as they come off their production lines right now the FAA does could Boeing still deliver airplanes if there was a shutdown because it's FAA employees who were ticketing the airplanes so I mean that's a question we don't have to worry about now I guess for Forty-five more days, but that—that that I think was probably the biggest burning question on investor minds. When you look at, oh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. When you look at the ten-year, um, ten-year yield keeps kind of trickling higher. You know, it broke through four point six this week, and it's up at four point five. You know, almost four point six. Uh, ended the end of the week at four point five seven. Um, the you know, I think the, the, the thing there is you know, is will there be more increases? Who knows? Maybe, maybe not. But I think the market is finally digesting the fact that you know, rates will be higher for longer that, that, right. that 2% level that everybody sort of got used to and maybe shouldn't have, um, was more of an aberration maybe than kind of what is normal and healthy, right? I mean, you know, if you have 2% interest rates and 2% inflation, that means your real interest rates is zero, which is kind of weird, honestly. Um, the VIX <laughs> kind, of, kind of trickles higher. It's about 18 and, and and this was interesting, and, and I don't understand this because I'm not an oil analyst, but WTI closed the week around 91 and Brent 92. There's usually a $5 spread between the two. So it is a little weird that the two are so closely tied together. Um, I can't give a good explanation for that. There probably is one. Um, I'm just not an oil specialist. So yeah, back to you. Um,
0: uh, And I should have pointed out that the Minneapolis Fed, uh President Neil Kashkari uh, was uh, the, the guy who told um, Squawk Box uh, midweek last week, right, that um, there could be m- more interest rate hikes. I mean, are folks gauging this about how high is more high at this point,
1: Ron? Yeah, we don't, you know, we don't get a, a ton of questions about that. I think, you know, there is a it's an open debate, I think, around um, how how long do they stay here? Is there a little bit more? Is there a little bit less? You know, when's it come down? You know, I think there was this assumption that you'd see. The fed start immediately cutting right like it go up right? and then it'll come right back down um and it doesn't like, but why would like,
0: anybody think that we've discussed that right like
1: well because they said it's, they want to bring
0: inflation to two percent and so they'll go north of 5.2 in terms of you know what i mean i mean you know might 5.5 or wherever they're going to go to try to cool the economy down right
1: yeah because you know ultimately i think the markets kind of forever always sort of optimistic right i mean you know, if you trade stocks for a living, you learn pretty quick that shorting stocks is always infinitely harder than kind of going long. And there's this, you know, this, this optimistic bias that, yeah, it's right. going to be okay. This is what they're going to do. Just sort of built into the market. Right. Um, so I think, I think that's part of it. Um, and then I think part of it is if you do look at periods in the past and people are always trying to say, oh, this period's just like this period. Or, um, you know, there are many cases in the past where the Fed increased and then decreased. So um, so I think, you know, that, that, that's why uh, I think the big question ultimately is, you know, we've gone through a, an economic period that, you know, the world hasn't experienced in a very, very long time, uh, if ever. Um, so, you know, we we're still, I think, and I'm not an economist, it's just Ron's opinion, be clear about this, not the banks. Um, They're still kind of in, you know, uncharted economic territory in the U.S. and globally. In terms of, you know, the post pandemic recovery and all the stimulus and how what happens in labor markets and, you know, it's still kind of weird out there and right? it's normalizing, but it, it, you know, broadly from an economic perspective, it is just uncharted territory. So we'll see sure. where it goes.
0: And, and uh, you already answered my other question, which is, you know, now that we didn't have a government shutdown, does it change anything? And the answer to that is, is no. <laughs> so, um, uh, which is which is good for everybody, right? Uh, ultimately, that we have, uh, averted uh, a shutdown, and ideally, we, you know, pass a budget and resolve this so that it's not a holiday. Uh, you know, a holiday killer for folks. Um, Sash, uh, just real quick, right? I mean, inflis- interest, uh, excuse me, inflation is at the lowest uh, that it's been in two years, which is uh, great news. Uh, obviously, European central bankers uh, working uh, on that part of the equation as well as, as is the Bank of England. But what were the drivers for the market uh, last week in, in Europe, given that we had so many different, um, you know, and pretty significant news points across the week?
3: Yeah, I mean, look, there was a there was a lot, there was a lot, there's a lot of news flow. Although most of it was second, relatively second order stuff. So you have to be right, um, inflation rates are coming down, uh, and hence interest rates are starting to to follow. I mean, just you know, the one that's closest to to my heart clearly, UK inflation rate is down from, you know, depending on the metric used, uncomfortably over ten percent to six point three percent last month. That was that was announced this week. Um, that actually is the arguably the metric that has the most political significance and hence the most direct read across to companies that we look at in that the inflation rate is very much held to be uh, the the number, the metric that Rishi Sunak, the UK Prime Minister, looks at when he decides when to call the next election. You've got to call an election by the autumn of next year. You know, we've, got, we've got what might yet be 12 long months. But it's pretty widely uh, commented on by people who who I think, I tend to Trust that Sunak would like to be able to announce an election saying we've got, in, we've got inflation down to 3%. You know, we dealt, we, the, the government, the Conservative Party, dealt with inflation for you. Um, so, uh, you know, we've come down 3%, uh, 3% 3, nearly 4% so far. We've got another 3% to go. Um, it's coming down quite slowly at the moment in the UK, but that is the number to look at in terms of uh, the politics uh, in, in the UK. Um, other countries, you know, inflation is at least as as hot a potato. So, uh, you, you know, that's that's why politicians very much focus on that in terms of the decisions that they have to make. But I think it's the UK general election sometime between now and and the autumn next year. The timing of that will be absolutely decided by the inflation rate.
0: And uh, very quickly, uh, Sash, even though I think we're going to discuss, uh, you know, defense spending trends uh, and the like, uh, Grant Shapps, uh, the Britain's new uh, defense secretary, has talked about the need to increase aid uh, for Ukraine. He's also said that uh, British defense spending, uh, he's sort of hinted that British defense spending might have to be increased. One of the reasons why the HS2 rail project, for example, might have to be uh, re-examined, right? We'd have to be crazy if we didn't re-examine it, he said last week or week before last. What are, what are we gleaning in terms of what the outlook <laughs> for defence is going to be and where Britain stands in that, mm-hmm. right, as German defence spending, you know, surges off the map, to be honest?
3: Yeah, I mean, look, we're going to come to German defence spending uh, in, a, uh, in a few minutes, but I'm, I would say German defence spending was coming from being way too low. Uh, the UK was at least among the four or five uh, biggest spenders in NATO in terms of percentage GDP, even if that was and is not enough. Um, you know, Grant Chappis has quite clearly narrated briefs. Uh, he's you know, has been in defence secretary for the end of a month. Um, you remember we talked at the about the DSEI defence show in London um, the other week. The service chiefs there were very much on their best behaviour. You know, the line to take was UK's got the biggest defence budget in Europe. Um, uh, the key is to spend it better, not necessarily spend more. But right. um the one exception to that out was, was our view then and is now is integrated air and missile defence, which has come right up the, the priority list. And I do wonder whether Grant Chaps is making a, uh is start, going to start to make the point for that um uh within cabinet because that might be the one area where the UK can't, can't or you know where they where politically it's possible to raise defence spending. The other thing to watch out for, particularly from him, will be um, because the Conservative Party conference is coming up uh, uh, this coming week. It'd be very interesting to see whether he has anything to say about AUKUS, the uh, the uh, US-Australian uh, UK defence pact. Clearly, the UK uh, you know is ultimately going to end up building submarines with and for Australia. Um, I think it's going to be fascinating to see, you know, whether he has got something to say about the pace of spending and indeed the other priorities, including uh, directed energy, cyber uh, and, and, and so forth. And you know, because that, that's one area where he can probably make uh, slightly more open uh, commitments than actually on the whole defence budget.
0: Uh, absolutely uh, uh, fascinating. Uh, Richard, uh, let me uh, bring you into this and uh, bring it all the way around uh, to uh, the, it's a little bit of the commercial portion of the discussion before we delve back into um, defense. Uh, but um, the geared turbofan issue continues. Uh, by the way, you're welcome to weigh in on any of the broader economic factors uh, as well. But I wanted you to start off uh, the discussion, given that each of us in separate fashion discussed it and Sash and everybody else, including you, have been getting questions about the The lingering uh, implications of um, the geared turbofan issue, Um, you know, and and Ron's contention that hey, if you're using some of these you know powdered metal technologies and you were having problems in geared turbofan, like why wouldn't you have them in other uh, uh, products uh, as well? Give us your sense on any of the broader economic news, uh, but then also sort of lead us into so now a couple of weeks after the the geared turbofan announcement, folks are still trying to process it and are asking some pretty significant questions.
2: Yeah, uh, well, that's a lot to discuss, but uh, taking it in turn, you know, GTF, first of all, yes, start with additive, which I, you know, I would assume that the majority of this powdered metal goes towards additive, which was one of the great hyped technologies of the last decade. Clearly, we might have gotten a little bit ahead of ourselves in terms of the technology. Obviously, you had a couple of famous examples where additive was oversold, um, you know, just in terms of cost effectiveness from a manufacturing process. And now you have the additional need to, uh, well, look carefully after the supply chain associated with the powdered metal that goes into additive. Um, Okay. (laughs) This is clearly a big lesson. Uh, Hopefully it will be absorbed. You know, again, it falls under the heading of the great irony, you know, starting 15 years ago when GTF got going um, and they... Pratt was very defensive about gearboxes. Do they pay their way? Are they finally ready for prime time after many decades of trying? And the answer was they were all right completely. The, you know, the gearbox is not a problem. However, <laughs> the bad, bad news is the rest of the engine clearly has some issues. And, uh, well, yeah, I think it's uh, Jonathan Berger who says, uh, who had that wonderful line, you know, we've gone from teething pains to root canal. Uh, not pleasant. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah okay this is a big financial hit this is a big inconvenience hit it's a big reputational hit um brett whitney's best friend right now is the extremely long backlogs at both of the oems that build narrow body jet engines thank you know they should be thanking their lucky stars because switching costs are that much greater when you're just going to get in a much longer line for leap ones so in other words this is painful It's a multi-billion dollar hit. It hurts. This too shall pass. Um, I know that's, you know, it's tough to absorb right now when everyone's screaming murder because they don't have the capacity online that they want. But on the other hand, it's important to remember the fundamental enabling technology has not been called into question. And again, switching costs are prohibitive. So you could see a maybe a slight shift in market share, but it's not going to last very long. And I don't think it'll be terribly ruinous. It's, again, just financial and reputational, not much more. Uh, turning to the macroeconomic stuff, yeah, I mean, Ron's point about the long-term interest rates creeping upwards, I think there's this big debate now, which is, uh, you know, are higher rates the new normal? Rather, you know, team transitory trans- seems to have a slight advantage in the great inflation debate it seems like it might have been just long term or longish for transitory but transitory bad news is the age of easy you know money and well low cost capital seems perhaps to be drawing to a close even if we don't have you know more than the 5.25 i believe uh, or five and a quarter federal fund effective rate even if it doesn't get much higher than that you still have the specter of this sort of rate persisting for some time. Now, as Ron has pointed out in his presentations, historically, you know, that's still not terribly bad. Uh, But on the other hand, it's, yeah, it's been 10 or 15 years that we've had cheap credit. How does this impact the industry? You know, two ways. One, jetliner finance. Um, it, It can hurt. And of course, especially when you have debt, You know, priced in a certain way. Um, And, you know, you've got lease rates that can't be adjusted in time that could hurt. Um, So far, it's been all right. But it's important to remember that jetliner markets um, respond well to an environment where not just interest rates are low, but fuel prices are high. It's that relationship between the cost of capital and the cost of fuel that's such an important determinant in the health of the market. And right now we're getting higher interest rates than we would like. That's bad. But fuel is still pretty darn expensive. What does this mean? It means that airlines still want new jets to cope with 90buck a barrel or even 100buck a barrel fuel. So that is good. Um, you know, it's it, the relationship is holding that should keep the market healthy. I'm not overly worried. If we somehow have fuel drop back down below, say, 65 or whatever, whatever the magic number is, and interest rates are higher, that's a very bad scenario. So let's, you know, I, I don't want to root for higher fuel prices, but let's hope it stays, you know, in the magic Goldilocks 70 to 100 zone, which is very encouraging for people who want to refleet. And as long as they can still get cash at that 5 to 6% at most rate, um, things will be fine. Now, the other area where the industry gets hit, of course, is speculative new ventures. You know, you had all of those crazy wild and willy SPACs and whatever else uh, funding random ideas and playful freehand drawings because it seemed like anyone could have access to a, a billion dollars delivered by a wheelbarrow. Um, those days are over. Um, will that precipitate a collapse of the? Hundreds of <laughs> new startups that began, probably not. But on the other hand, it's not going to help. And those days of creating new things, uh, shiny new objects that appear on the cover of Popular Mechanics, probably well at an end.
0: I, I, I love the uh, the wheelbarrows of uh, billions. Boy. Uh, God, the, the good old days. Um, a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage and Spirit Aerosystems, Defense, and Space, sponsored our coverage of the Air Force Association's Air, Space, Cyber, Conference, and Trade Show. Uh, Ron and uh, Sash, do you want to take a quick bite at some of um, Richard's assessment of of sort of the macro factors, what that means for production? Honestly, I still have some questions about traffic uh, because I've been traveling uh, a lot uh, and just hearing from people about sort of the unsustainability uh, of some of these ticket prices, uh, you know, even though it appears people are still paying them. But on the other hand, it also appears airlines are giving uh, folks ways of getting those tickets instead of necessarily spending that kind of money, uh, especially in the front of the cabin. Anyway, walk, walk us through Ron and Sash, and then we're going to move on. And then Sash, uh, perhaps you can also use this as an opportunity to talk about, uh, you know, Airbus and, and Christian's uh role uh in sales as well as the three air france a350 order which is positively whopping go ahead ron uh, start us off and then head head over to sash
1: yeah i mean we've seen weakness in commercial aero um at least in the us um because you've seen some of the, the low fare airlines spirit frontier as examples um you know not doing as well as people had hoped right uh, and we're moving into a, a seasonally weaker period for the airlines, right? You know, we're moving in that l- lull time of the year. Um, broadly, I, I don't really worry about it from an aircraft demand perspective, because as we all know, as we've talked about now for probably the better part of three years, you know, Boeing and Airbus are like woefully behind deliveries, and it's not like there's been an oversupply of airplanes to the airlines. Right? No one could argue that. Uh, so, unless we were to have like a a, a sort of existential drop in demand. Um, I, I don't really worry about it at this point. I'm still honestly more worried about the supply chain production labor and all the usual stuff that we've been talking about. Um, so again, that's where it falls out for me.
3: Sash. Yeah. So I mean, I, I, I just like to pick up a point that Richard made, um, actually, uh, about, you know, what the market share is, um, uh, I, I, and I like to point about that. You know, Pratt Bridget's best friend at the moment is uh, is effectively CFM and the uh, the long backlog of the of the Leap uh, 1A. I, I think that's a that's a that's a great way to describe it. And Pratt, got to hope that that continues to be the case. But I don't subscribe to the view that the market shares of these two engines are going to remain the same as a result of Pratt's problems. I think Pratt's problems have been massive. I think Pratt has been behind the curve most of the time. And we were getting a lot of incoming calls last week, not just from investors, interestingly, but also from corporates, uh, talking about how the problem is not being addressed and how the big risk is, or you know, the big risk for some of them, is that Airbus missed their production rate increased targets for next year, 2024 and 2025, because Pratt just can't deliver the same gear telephones to airlines who are crying out for them, and to Airbus who needs them to hit their ramp. So I think that, you know, the the, the crisis by no means dealt with yet. I really think it's important to look at what happened the last time we had uh, an engine mess like this, uh, which was Rolls-Royce with the Trent 1000 engine. Remember, the Trent 1000 engine basically became a sort of self-burning engine. Uh, It had real problems uh, in uh, the core. Rolls had to go through a series of uh, redesigns to sort it out. Rolls underestimated the problems for at least the first three years and then finally got on top of them. Um, and, you know, and now that appears to be a relatively stable process. But at the start of the process, Rolls' market share on the Boeing 787 was uh, you know, certainly a good third, possibly, depending on how you count it, 40%. What is it now? 20% and falling. I can't remember the last time Rolls had a, uh, a new order from a new customer for the Trent 1000, i.e., it killed them in market share terms. 787 effectively is General Electric's now uh, to, uh, to power. Um, so I would not want to be complacent about uh, Pratt and Rennie's ability to hold on to a 50% market share on the A320neo. I think it could easily fall uh, to, you know, down certainly into the, the low 40s. I think recovering back to 50% requires engineering miracles by Pratt and Rennie. Fine, may happen. Um, but more importantly, it probably requires the GTF advantage, the next big upgrade of the GTF, to be jaw-droppingly good and to come in, you know, on time and everything else. Uh, but I think that's what's required to get back fifty percent. Not an, um, you know, not just sort of, uh, a, a sort of equilibrium in, in the market. Just other couple of other Airbus points to uh, to make. I mean, interesting thing this week was the Airbus uh, board announced that Christian Scherer, currently uh, C- uh, CEO Commercial. Airbus is going to become CEO for Airbus uh, Commercial Aircraft. And that frees up Guillaume Forry, uh, who'd been double-hatting as head of Commercial Aircraft and as head of Airbus Group itself, to actually go and do what, what CEOs should do, uh, which is sit on top of all, the, or, uh, of all the divisions and actually uh, not just monitor all of them and manage all of them, but, but also think much more deeply about strategic stuff. All right. Christian Sherry is a very safe pair of hands. Um, you know, he is Airbus born and bred He's done a fantastic job commercially. I don't have any worries about him at all. I think it is very good, very positive for Guillaume Gianfori to be moving up. Uh, you know, to, to be stepping aside from commercial aircraft. I think he was very good at a time when commercial aircraft was going through the crisis that was COVID. But I think that Airbus has got challenges in all of its divisions. You know, defense and space is going through a period where it has no profitable space business, and where its defense businesses are becoming more. R&D and less production. Helicopters, you know, the challenges of vertical lift, just what is the vertical lift market going to look like in 10 years. That actually needs a lot of uh, detailed thought if Airbus is to lose the, the fantastic franchise they've got. And then there are the issues of when does Airbus launch a new uh, narrow body? Um, and, you know, how do they invest uh, for, for, you know, the future that may be hydrogen? I, so, you know, those, uh, I think, are going to keep Guillaume Forey very, very busy indeed. Uh, he clearly needed some of the of Christian Scherer's um, uh, calibre to be uh, running the shop in the meantime.
0: Ron and Richard, if you guys want to take a bite at that, but uh, Richard, I was going to try to move on uh, a little bit because we've got a lot of other defense news uh, that we need to talk about. But to ask you about uh, Air France's whopping 350 uh, order uh, and then uh, uh, Air Canada's uh, 787 order uh, where Boeing announced, like at this point, the company will be operating all models of the 787. I apologize if in the introduction I said 777, uh, which I which I might have. Um, kind of, you know, take, take a bite at, at both of those and Ron, if you want to weigh in on those, uh, as well, go ahead, go ahead, Richard.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, the, uh, it is whopping, I think was the, uh, the term sash used by today's standards, but let's put it in historical t- terms, you know, we used to see far bigger wide body orders. Um, I mean, this at, at peak rates, this came to, uh, six months production. Right. So I, before we declare the wide body ordered round over, let's put things in perspective. And this is a requirement that's been around for some time. There is indeed uh, a recovery, a limited recovery for the 787 and A350 and exactly zero other wide bodies, uh, but that doth not make a crew wide body comeback that's going to be a very long way off and thanks to that secular shift in fleet planning in favor of single aisles that's probably not even this decade still it was a nice win for the h350 the most interesting thing i thought about it i heard about it was people said and i think even air france said that part of the rationale for getting the longer range plane you know relative to a 787-10 for example uh, is considerations related to russian airspace closure You know, I think people have been perhaps treating that as a a one or two year thing, but this to the best of my knowledge, at least is the first time I've heard anybody making very long term fleet planning decisions on the basis that uh, Russia might have uh, permanent or periodic airspace closures for some time. That was really interesting. Um, It's also interesting that Air France was sort of a flagship triple seven operator for many years. It was almost emblematic of free trade. And I and I hope you know, just the same way back in the day, United and U.S. Airways were emblematic of free trade with their A320 purchases. You know, I hope this doesn't presage an era of political pressure, but I fear one is coming, both in the U.S. and in Europe, associated with industrial policy. It's kind of irresistible from a political standpoint. And even though the WTO forbids this for signatories of the associated agreements, I am concerned uh, but nevertheless, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to impugn this purchase <laughs> with that right now. Some, just something to watch out for. I understand completely the reasons for choosing the A350 and it's welcome news.
0: Um, I would uh, point out, right. This is a broader issue, uh, that I would like us to discuss and perhaps we can do so in next week's program, because a lot of these, um, uh, n- nationalist actions and anti-trade practices we're seeing, whether on the you know american picket lines in the american automobile industry and elsewhere it just bears b- bitter fruit right i mean at the end of the day we protected our auto industry many decades ago and it ended up becoming very uncompetitive and it's got its butt kicked uh, by global competitors and just being competitive in global industries has a tendency of just being good it's good for the consumer good for everybody if if you have some limitations or some strategic elements you want to protect. That's great. But protectionism sort of at large uh, backfires, uh, I, I think, right? Just to well make said. your point for you.
2: Well said. Absolutely.
0: Indeed. I Even, even uh, broken watches, right? Twice a day, Richard. <laughs> uh, Ron, I want to give you a bite on this, right? I mean, is there anything you want to add, whether on, you know, like the management or the orders or anything else, or do we
1: just move on? Yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> other than the fact that I mean, the the order from Air France for the A three hundred and fifty really suggests that when you when you look historically, I think people would argue that Boeing always had this meaningful advantage in the in the wide body market, but you know, A three hundred and fifty is a formidable competitor. Um, so you know, I mean, other than that, and, and then I think if you go back to Airbus's um, um, capital markets day, uh, for a made a point to say. Airbus would like to do in the wide-body market what they did in the narrow-body market. Um, and this would suggest that they're making headway on that strategy.
0: I mean, especially if you have uh, kind of a strategic player, which I think Airbus uh, is. Uh, and Wright puts more pressure on Boeing to try to, write sort its own portfolio house out.
1: People always argue competition is good. Sometimes I don't think management teams really mean it because competition is uncomfortable. But competition does keep everybody on the top of their game.
0: Uh, a quick reminder to our audience to check out our weekly podcasts Cavas ships hosted by Chris Cavas and Chris cervello and sponsored by hiI and GE marine a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters the downlink with Laura winter who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our very own JJ Gertler. um it, speaking of which we are now going to uh, a little bit of air power and hard power Um Sash, talk to us a little bit about uh, any more about German defense spending. It's surging. We have the checks uh, formalizing the F-35 uh, purchase of 24 jets. And Richard, I know that you want to kind of weigh in on F-16 and uh, the fact that Bob Menendez is no longer the chairman of the Senate uh, Foreign Relations uh, Committee. Uh, Sash, is there anything you want to add in terms of German defense spending and and uh, and the like?
3: Yeah, well, look... Um... 18 months ago, uh, Chancellor Schultz announced that Germany was not only going to increase uh, defense spending up to 2% of GDP, but also spend 100 billion euros, uh, effectively to recapitalize the uh, German armed forces as a, as a sort of a very, very large one off. And then we waited- as part, of, as, and... part of the, as part of the Titan vendor, right? Sort yeah, of the new dawn. Yes, so <laughs> turning point. Um, and, and, and that was tremendously well uh, taken and then nothing happened. Uh, And uh, there were a lot of excuses made as to, why the German procurement process takes so long um, and uh, and so forth. But I think what's been very, very interesting is that certainly in the last quarter or so, and this is the feedback we're now getting from companies, the floodgates have started to open and the Federal Procurement Office in Koblenz is now placing incredibly large, sometimes what they call framework orders or frame orders for ammunition for armored vehicles for uh, and, and you know particularly for, for you know big upgrades but also for infantry fighting systems and um, this is clearly going to come through in the Q3 results for the for the German defense companies so um, you know uh, Hensold Rheinmetall even Airbus Defence and Space is going to get, is going to get a uh, a chunk of this although it gets lost in the rounding with Airbus um, and the, the comments that we're getting out of Germany, which have been really fascinating is that the Federal Government Office now has got a target that it wants to place all of the all of the hundred billion of orders by the end of Q1 of next year Uh, and looking at, you know, the quarter just gone where they probably just, you know, very rough estimates placed orders in the 15 to 20 billion region and look like they're going to do the same next quarter and the same quarter after. I think they're going to do that. Now, big challenge for companies then. Is going to be actually how do they deliver against that, and were they confident enough to build the stock ahead of the official the official German orders? I think some of them have been able to do that, particularly with serial production, uh, relatively small items. But I, you know, it's just very very encouraging that Germany, that you know, uh, talked a lot and just didn't seem to be delivering, is actually now placing, placing big orders, and companies are starting to see that falls in their cost.
0: Uh, Richard, uh, talk to us a little bit about the uh, F-35 uh, order uh, and what you think uh, it, you know, I mean, ultimately means. I mean, it's an extraordinary run for the, uh, for the F-35 uh, and also weigh in. Uh, on Bob Menin and what that means for F-16s, F-16s for Turkey. Obviously, uh, the senator who's under uh, a federal indictment for, on corruption charges uh, has um, stepped down uh, temporarily from his chairmanship. Uh, and is under a lot of pressure, obviously, to resign. But he was a big supporter, uh, or, or I should say, a big critic of uh, Turkey and a supporter of Greece and Ar- Armenia, among other uh, causes. He's accused of, um, uh, uh, you know, taking bribes from uh, Egyptian interests. Walk us through on the F thirty uh, five deal and what it means with Prague, uh, but also what the whole Menendez matter might mean for actually combat ex- air- aircraft exports.
2: Yeah. You know, starting with the F-35, it's um, obvious that the eastern part of Europe seems to be I, I, yeah, you know, what Western Europe used to be to the F-16 in the 70s. Eastern Europe is now to the F-35 in the, uh, the well, this this whatever decade we're getting into here, uh, whether it's Romania, Poland, Finland and uh, and now Czech Republic. Um, it's interesting though, that there was a kind of truth in production aspect to this order. Uh, everyone else has been sort of stepping up to the plate and saying, um, uh, oh yes, we like our planes starting in 2027. And of course you've got this ridiculous train wreck in production where, you know, it, as long as somehow they can magically get numbers up. Yes. People will get their F 35s in time. Otherwise they're going to be horribly disappointed here. The check said, Oh forget it. We'll take them starting in 2031 and get them through 2035 which is hopefully realistic. Maybe they'll get the production problems sorted out by then and uh, not just to 156 per year but maybe even beyond at a certain point. So there was an interesting realism and and they also did some realistic planning. Thankfully unlike Western Europe they don't have aging F16A and B models. They've got creepins which are not too old, and the lease on those can be extended, which is what they've done. So it's a uh, you know smart long-term planning that takes into account the realities of our very different, difficult uh, production right. environment. Um, in terms of uh, Senator Menendez, for, maybe former Senator Menendez, unbelievably cheesy scandal there. You know, I, I you know, say what you will about uh, the Erdogan government, um, and, and I understand his criticism of it. There is, however, the potential for a very nice grand slam here where basically you get Erdogan to agree. To Sweden joining NATO, and in return he gets upgrades to his F16s and more new F16s. Fantastic news for the F16 program, although it too has its own production problems. What with the need to build for Bulgaria, Bahrain, Morocco, and uh, and most of all Taiwan. Um, But you know, you also look at from the standpoint of the Turkish Air Force. They haven't taken a new plane since the 90s. They're the only power in the region without a roadmap towards an AESA radar badly aging fleet, they really need this to go through. I, I tend to think that Erdogan has a weaker hand here than people have been saying, uh, because yeah, the chance of him getting something else um, without a major commitment to industrialization associated with, say, a Eurofighter buy or a FAL buy, that would include offsets, and thereby admitting that maybe the TFX uh, con is not ready for production which it it won't be for many years to come um you know that would be a tough thing to admit so the only thing he could do really is take f-16s because they're already productionized for in-country output for f-16s so uh i you know this bizarre bizarre scandal kind of frees up a, a kind of well a a happy chain of events for hopefully uh most people involved
0: uh, it it depends on uh, how happiness is measured, but yes, I can see that from a Turkish perspective <laughs> and that yes. that and, happiness and, would, would be achieved. Yes,
2: and Sweden and NATO and and U.S. Indeed.
0: industry. Indeed. In in indeed. Ron, I I just want you to be patient because we're going to lose Sash uh, in just a minute unless I ask him this question. Uh, It's always exciting uh, to be at a new product launch. It's uh, always exciting to see airplanes, but airplanes get launched more often than submarines do. And uh, Sweden uh, has been trying to revolutionize or continue its long heritage of innovation in the submarine business uh, with the A26, which is uh, being unveiled. And Sash is going to be part of the group that's going to get a chance to actually walk around it and see it. Uh, It is so good that even before its debut, in any capacity, the Chinese have already copied the sale uh, of the A26, which I think is uh, terrific, and I say this um, without any reservation. I'm a big fan of the of uh, the, the Swedish uh, submarine force, uh, its professionalism and its capabilities. Um, one of the Gotland class uh, spent uh, a couple of years in the United States and impressed the living daylights out of the United States Navy uh, as well. Uh, Sash, give us a take on what it is you uh, hope to see uh, and and how the you know, I'm just sort of curious also that when you go online and you look at A26 materials, there's an awful lot of it that's in Polish, right? Uh, so even though there are no uh, buyers yet, uh, they've been trying to work more closely with uh, Warsaw, uh, including the United States clearing tomahawks uh, for Poland as well, which would be an incredible added capability. Anyway, walk, walk us through where we are on the program, what you hope to see and what its prospects are, which might not be as as dim as some people have projected.
3: Yeah, um, I, no, you know, I'm huge excited. This will be the fourth submarine yard that I visited around the world. And they're all different. Uh, they all produce different boats, very, very different designs. This is definitely the, you know, the smallest, but I suspect you know, pretty perfectly formed for, uh, for the job. Just for uh, those of our listeners who don't know, I'm mean, A26 is the new class of Swedish submarines. Uh, it's very, very optimized at this stage for Baltic and um, effectively North Sea operations. So, it's a, it's, a, it's a diesel electric with um, uh, air independent propulsion. Uh, it's really, by the standards of, of anybody who, and we've all been talking about AUKUS and the, the uh, nuclear submarines for Australia. A26 is a relatively small uh, diesel electric submarine, surface uh, displacement about uh, 1900 tons, um, and a very, very small complement as well. Uh, I mean, I've been aboard a um, uh, the, you know the French nuclear boats, the old amethyst class, were felt pretty small at the time. But the A26 complement is is about 26 uh, personnel, so they're going to be working very very hard indeed. But what does it give you? It gives you, or what does it give the suite It gives a submarine that carries 15 21 inch torpedoes, so a uh, a, a material um, uh, you know magazine in that in that respect, and a submarine that's very optimized for. Uh, shallow water operations for operations in um, an environment where you have a lot of uh, mix of salinity. You know, the Baltic, up at the, the north end of it, is pretty much stretch water. There are areas down the south end that uh, that, are, that are barely brackish. But then you've got some very, very deep saline as well. So it's a very complex environment. Um, and uh, the Swedes have designed a submarine that is, is perfect for that. Why are you seeing this Polish material? Because the, Swe- the Poles have got uh, a similar requirement and uh, S- Swedish-Polish defense relations are improving, I think by the month at the moment. Uh, Poland uh, built the hull for the new Swedish Hulch- electronic intelligence uh, warship. Uh, Poland is now buying uh, some REI, uh radar systems. They clearly bought quite a lot of other uh, uh, ground combat systems from Saab as well. And the two navies have got pretty similar requirements, let's be honest. You know, the Swedes are going to be building a new Corvettes that will look very similar to the uh, frigates that the Poles are building under license from uh, from Bangkok in the UK. So, you know, two sides of the Baltic, pretty similar requirements. Uh, I think offering A26 to Poland makes a great deal of sense. Clearly, Sol will be up against huge competition from uh, to some crook, uh particularly, but also from naval group. Um, but I think Croft is, is, is the one to beat there. Uh, the other requirement, but it seems to be a bit quiet, is for the Netherlands. Um, and the Netherlands requirement is, is definitely bigger because it's not just North Sea. The Netherlands have tended to use their uh, SSKs much more up in the uh, Greenland-Island-UK gap. Uh, and so size, endurance, and that probably means a bigger crew is going to be important. But submarine submarine designs can be scaled up, uh, although I wouldn't want to underestimate the... the um, uh, ease with which that can be done. But that, that's the other big one to, solve, to, to offer. And clearly, 2A26 is on order now. Sweden looks like it's going to buy a third. Um, and these things are not produced uh, at a very high rate anyway. I think it's going to be a fascinating example of how smaller countries look at the requirements for what, in their case, are strategic weapon systems.
0: Uh indeed. Uh it's gonna be very fascinating and we look forward to getting your full uh assessment uh when you are back. Uh Ron, uh bon voyage, uh, by the way, Sash, because I sense that they're actually closing uh the door and you guys are getting ready to leave. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Uh, th- yeah, many thanks, thanks. Very Talk much. to you all night's week. Thanks a lot. Bon voyage, bon voyage, have a great week. And uh Ron, uh just before we part, you get the last word on this on a topic that is absolutely Richard's uh favorite one. Uh, uh, air, uh urban air mobility the up summit uh is uh, this week uh it's a bit uh secretive but anyway what 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 do you make of it what is it you expect to come out of it
1: yeah i attended it last year um in bentonville arkansas this year it's at the pro ranch down uh, in in fort worth uh and it's it's a meeting of the minds on um air mobility um, one aspect of it is urban air mobility but they look at electric Aviation, hybrid aviation, uh, you know, regional, a whole bunch of things. And yeah, you know, you know, what I would expect from it, just keep an eye out this week. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some headlines from some of the players in that space, uh, you know, across all vectors, everything from, you know, the, the usual suspects and kind of eVTOL to maybe some newer players and different propulsion systems and so on and so forth uh on you know what progress is being made and what's going on uh and that and that happens this this week and it's you know in, in that community i think it's generally a very important uh, event and uh you'll have a lot of important players there across a bunch of different vectors
0: well we look forward uh to uh you know certainly discussing uh whatever the news uh that uh, comes out of the event uh richard do you have any last point you want to make before we part for the week
2: yeah, just on a related note, you had the wildly hyped uh first delivery, quote unquote, of a Joby Air vehicle to uh, the Air Force this week. Um that was bizarre to me. I still would like to hear from anybody what the mission is and what the Air Force would ever do with this because it doesn't correspond to any known Air Force capability requirement or whatever, even the light training thing. Obviously, you can't use an electric train for turbines. So the whole thing is just very baffling to me.
0: Um, Well, I think I can explain it, right? I mean, the United States Air Force uh, first, this uh, contract was uh, or the program and the initiative was started by Dr. Roper, who was Air Force Acquisition Executive. Uh, He went on, obviously, to a a couple of, uh, uh, you know, air uh, aircraft startups, uh, and it was merely to explore the technology and see whether or not it can be used for everything from uh, package delivery, battlefield support, and and what have you. Right, I mean, so I could see uh, easily why the Air Force would want to spend money on this to sort of be like, okay, you know, am I going to? You know, have access to anything interesting and interesting technology that could help us. Right. I mean, even if you want to look at it from a combat search and rescue standpoint. Right. I mean, right now we put a lot of things at risk, uh, even with battlefield supply or rescuing people. Right. It's the number one factor that goes into position before we do a large air operation. Obviously, as you go toward more unmanned platforms, that reduces it, but you still need to rescue aviators in the event that they go down, uh, whether through mechanical failure or enemy action. And so there's, you know, there's a little bit of interest that's always existed, whether it's programs that Bell has worked on, right? I mean, they had a, the, the 247 could do a personal recovery, uh, you know, has has those two stretcher-like things inside that you can do personal recovery if needed. Um, there was something that was discussed some years ago. So, you know, you could see, from a U.S. Air Force standpoint, why wouldn't I want to explore these technologies? Ron, I mean, is that is that right uh, from your standpoint? I mean, is it completely absurd?
1: Oh, I mean, it's a science project, right? So, I mean, it's, you know, from that point of view, I mean, the vehicle as we know it um, hasn't really flown people and has limited range and has a lot of airtime, but a lot of it's been done as a drone, essentially. Right. So, you know, I would imagine you know, the Air Force taking delivery of it. They just want to play with it, and see what they can do with it. Um, And, you know, that's, I think that's kind of as far as it goes. Richard, does that satisfy you?
2: Um, It's a science fair project, the sort of thing they could have learned around about in books. I mean, in terms of battlefield logistics, no, nope, that's not an Air Force mission. In terms of uh, personnel recovery vehicle, Uh, No, this thing, you could read about it in books, that it's going to be a very long time, many, many decades, if ever, before batteries will do that for you in terms of range and payload and, of course, the fact that most PRVs for the Air Force have aerial refueling, which you can't do with electric. So I don't understand this at all. It seems to me they could have looked up the data in a book uh, or maybe a series of websites. I don't know. Um, So it's a bit of a diversion of bandwidth in terms of cash in terms of management at the air force i i'm, I'm just baffled by it
0: um i i think that that uh ex- you know it would be hilarious if you have an electric tanker it streams <laughs> an extension cord you plug it in you use an x amount of power to, you know that would be interesting a tesla tesla supercharger in the sky that would be battery great.
2: transfer system of some sort
0: I'm just talking about power transfer system. I don't think I don't think you're going to be blocking and, you know, using block and tackle or other means to move a battery and uh, plug it in in flight. But, you know, we've tried stranger things, right, with parasite aircraft and things like that. And at one point, aerial refueling was seen as bizarre. So God knows what we'll be in 50 years, Richard. So true. On that note, I think it's a great place to stop the show. Guys, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Hope you guys have uh, a great uh, rest of uh, what's left of the weekend. Uh, Hope you both have a great week and look forward to reconvening again next week. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks, We're Looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, great to be on all together again. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for joining us as well. And a very special thanks to Bill for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. Uh, Tune in tomorrow for our uh, Look Ahead uh, program, uh, where we're going to talk about a government shutdown averted, what are the next steps, uh, and where we are on Russia's war on Ukraine, as well as uh, Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners joining us for a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Uh, Thanks very much again. Hope everybody has a great day and we'll see you again tomorrow.